I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. beginning the end so where to start this is a journey into sound brought to you in living color on wtdr information in the form of energy streams in, streams in. simultaneously through all of our sensory systems in the form of energy Lisa Dickens and Amy Torok, welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you for having us. What a delight to be on a Magical Mystery Tour with you. <laughs> Thank you so much for inviting us. So, Risa and Amy, you're the hosts of the Missing Witches podcast and the authors of this wonderful new book that we're going to be talking about today, Missing Witches. Recovering True Histories of Feminist Magic. And it's come out today, right? Today's the day. It's the official day. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) Congratulations. Thank you. What a strange feeling. Yeah, I was just going to ask you, how does it feel to have your book out in the world now? It's so, like, it's this sort of hovery, sparkly out-of-body feeling, you know. Amy and I both live, I think, similar to you, Tonya. We're we're out in the woods. We're still covered in snow, although it's melting. So we sort of feel the excitement of it on the Internet and friends and family sending us pictures of getting the book. But 
it all just feels sort of like a strange dream I had. I don't know about you. It's definitely a strange dream for sure. (laughs) But definitely a dream that Risa and I both had. I don't think either of us could have predicted that this is how we would write our first book. I like to say first book, keep the door open. Yeah, yeah, but I think we're both very grateful that this is how the universe saw fit to have us achieve that dream. So because both of you live in the woods, do you feel somewhat removed from the world around you and have a kind of relationship with the world around you in, in a way that's filtered through the distance of the woods? For me, the answer is yes and no, because Brisa and I both moved out of Montreal, which is a big, bustling, wonderful, active, vibrant city, and into the woods, uh, different parts of the woods. <laughs> so I think, Risa, you'll agree with me, what we've found is that we've been disconnected from one way of life, but absolutely reconnected to another way of life, and that's the way of life that exists in nature, in the woods. So... Yeah, I think we've been disconnected from society, but absolutely reconnected to a different version of society. Yeah, and I feel like for me that the book might not have happened if I hadn't gotten that space. You know, I I think your phrase, Tunio, about experiencing life or the world sort of filtered through the woods is so accurate that having that sort of distance from the constant interaction we were both people who were sort of constantly out in our arts communities and with local businesses and just sort of loving the city and having all of that distance from that made it possible for me to sit down and get closer to writing what I was really thinking. Sort of having that space from the many voices of the city meant that I could maybe get a little bit closer to hearing my own voice, I think. And certainly, Risa, I know you'll agree that this book definitely wouldn't have happened because it is structured around the wheel of the year. And being in the woods of Quebec, you really, it's your life. It's not theoretical or philosophical. The world is very different at Yule than it is, for example, at Lisa. Yeah. Yeah, I can totally relate to that. I grew up in New York City. Okay. So, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's a different kind of action and energy than I'm sure you find in the woods. Totally. Totally. And I love living in the woods. Yeah, I remember early on talking with Amy about this move, and I think we've watched a lot of friends and people go through this move and the debate about it, you know, especially during this strange pandemic year as people wanted to kind of pull away more into the woods or into growing their own food or whatever it was that was appealing. And the fear is always like, will I be lonely? Will I be isolated? And Amy was like, yeah, I thought I would be what I wasn't. It turns out the trees are wonderful friends, you know. And it was sort of like something that I was like, oh, that's a lovely idea. And then I got out here and was like, oh, no, yeah, I don't feel lonely at all. I know all these trees so well and I wait for the fish to come back or the different, you know, the things that we grow and we watch them over four, five, ten years. Yeah, and that's very much like related to ideas about witchcraft. You know, you hear things and you're like, oh, that's a lovely idea, you know, but then when you actually live within it, then you recognize it's definitely more than just lovely ideas. These are facts, you know. And the quietude of the woods allows for things that are difficult to hear when you're in the city, whether it's external things in nature, whatever nature there is in the city, but even more especially our inner landscape. Yeah, I think that was part of the appeal for us 
in structuring the book around the wheel of the year was that, you know, that that anchoring in the turning of time that you, you can really see in the woods and can be hard to see in the city was something that I think we wanted to like delve into and to share with people in our communities that there could be this way of marking time and noticing time passing and like stopping and listening to, you know, our, our biome and bacteria around us and trees and plants and animals and sort of listening more deeply to each other that maybe we could find a way back to by being anchored in something, something like seasons that was even more tied to the sun and the moon. And But certainly, I mean, you don't need to live in the woods to appreciate the book. Risa and I are, were city girls at heart. You know, we divide our hearts <laughs> between the city and the woods. So what we're doing is showing, like, the reality of nature, but also the metaphor and how whether you live in the desert or the woods, in the city or in the country, you can take those metaphors of nature into your life. If we think of planting a seed as an idea, not necessarily, you know, a flower seed and a flower grows, but when we have an idea... It's the same thing. We sort of have to put it into the dark, you know, watch it grow upward and downward. It needs nurturing. It needs all of those same things. The idea needs the same things as the seed. So it's very easy to take these, like, realities of nature and turn them into metaphors that we can use in our lives no matter where or when we are. Yeah. Yeah, and, like, kind of coming out, is there a way to sort of, like, get a little glimpse of a rhythm that's outside of this kind of constant poverty panic of late-stage capitalism, of patriarchy, of systemic racism? Can we kind of clear a path and just seeing something else, you know? And I, for me, a lot of that has been like just sort of paying attention to rhythms that are, that are beyond, that are, that are universal that are literally the universe. <laughs> <laughs> and certainly, you know, we've, we've had indigenous thinkers telling us this for hundreds of years, that, you know, the water is speaking. If you can be quiet and listen and patient and listen, yeah. then you'll hear it. Indigenous people have been telling us this for millennia. Yes. So it sounds like, and also from reading your book, that witchcraft and the experience and practicing as a witch um, is very closely attuned not only to nature, but also observing everything that's going on in the world around you in very deep and conscious ways, ways that are that involve a sense of caring and responsibility or having a, a sense of one's own place in the world and one's own sense of responsibility in relation to all the things that are going on in the world around us? Mm. Yeah, that's a nice way to put it. I mean, I think, you know, for us, like, we're not interested in speaking to anybody else's experience of being a witch or, you know, defining what it means to be a witch or grouping all sorts of people under the umbrella witch. It was like a word that made sense for us. And we sort of we're tossing it back and forth and trying to explore what it might mean. And, you know, we were exploring ritual in our own lives as a way of sort of connecting back with something that we felt we were missing. And that kind of grew into a research project that was like, what is it that we're really missing? Like, what is, what is this spiritual philosophy that we feel is lacking for us? And that's really the idea that grew into this project. And I think that, you know, it's very much from the perspective that you're describing of, 
really wanting to be awake to the world and responsible to the world. And I think caring is like not an overstatement that witches come from a place of deep care for the world itself and all of life. And I think that it's important to mention that for me anyway, again, Risa, as you said, like, we don't want to tell anyone how to be a witch. We tell stories of people who had very, very different ways of being a quote-unquote witch. But there is, under the umbrella of witchcraft, an idea of connectedness. And it sounds kind of maybe silly or trivial to say, like, when you hurt someone else, you're hurting yourself. When you hurt the earth, you're hurting yourself. So that care and responsibility that we have for other people and other things when you have a sense of connectedness between all things, it ceases to be altruism. It becomes self-preservation in a, in a very real way to me. Yeah, I can totally relate to that. So how are the two of you drawn to witchcraft as your mode of practice and method of ritualistic engagement with the world and also yourselves? I've talked about this before, that, you know, if you're growing up as a little girl, that you have two choices, <laughs> the princess or the witch, you know? And so I don't ever remember sort of taking on the word. I just sort of always felt like that and would seek out, you know, witch books from the time I can remember. And <laughs> it's funny now that the book is coming out when we started the podcast and now the book, you know, people from high school are like, I'm not the least bit surprised <laughs> what you did. You know, you're the original witch from high school. <laughs> um, so for me, like, I, I was raised in the church, but I was also raised feminist. And so there was a bit of an issue there for me in terms of resolving those things. I'm still working on it. But witch was something that I just sort of always carried and accepted. And so the more I learned about witches, the more I sort of acted out those things. And then when Risa and I became friends, it, we sort of formalized a coven after the death of a friend and looking for a, a way to heal and not really knowing how to do that. And so looking to these sort of witch books that we had collected to tell us what to do. And even if it is just lighting a candle of a particular color, you feel like you're doing something, you know. And mostly our coven became like an excuse to gather and be vulnerable. Risa, I think you'll agree with that. Like it was... Yeah really just the safest place to like come and cry or laugh and we would sing all in the same night you know so. yeah yeah i have the beginning of the book open because we when we wrote the introduction we sort of asked ourselves to tell that story and it says you know the most powerful thing we remember from that time was hearing ourselves say out loud what we really truly secretly wanted that we made a space for our real voices and that's really accurate for me of what that was like, of like improvising a coven meant that with your circle of friends, you could make a space to talk to the universe, you know, to talk about your true fears and desires. And that was incredibly life-changing, you know. And and outside of the like, you know, psychological benefits of that, you know, we were we were doing witchcraft. And I remember... Specifically, there was one, we had done a group prosperity ritual. And I came home to find an email from someone who wanted to hire me to do a graphic design job. And that seemed pretty magical. But at the same time, I was conscious of the fact that the universe had not given me money. The universe had given me an opportunity to earn some extra money. 
And so, again, I kind of made that a metaphor in my mind, too, you know, that people are looking to do magic and have the universe maybe fix their problems or drop a pile of money in their lap. And what happens more often is that the universe gives you an opportunity to put in the work to make it happen. Yeah. Yeah, or sometimes, like, helps you clear away the layers and stacks of, like, fears and self-doubt that let you ask for it. I mean... You know, even finding our our publisher for this book was really just like, you know, we had this pile of essays and I went to a group and was like, I think this should be a book. And someone commented on in the group and was like, I also think this should be a book. And I'm an acquisitions editor at North Atlantic. And we were like, oh, you're our Sylvate publisher, you know. So those moments like that have felt like incredible magic that, you know, have a, a real grounding in the mundane you know, you you have to do the work and then the magic flourishes around that. That is a wonderful, magical connection. North Atlantic Books is my favorite publishing house. I mean, they, as far as I'm concerned, they put out the best books. Yeah, we, we're, <laughs> we're, we're in love, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and certainly, I mean, they have been so open to our ideas as well. I mean, someone that I interviewed for the podcast that I knew was working on the book, I put them in touch and now they have a book deal. And so it is just this web that we're, you know, we're building these strands together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting metaphor of weaving strands together. I'm reading a, another book right now for my next interview, it's about divine and miraculous conception. Mm. Very powerful witchy stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Risa, as a mother, I think you'd probably say there is no conception which is not divine. <laughs> yeah, and also a death, yeah. 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 And Risa, you talk about in the book, too, how in our reading it came up that the mother is, is the original shaman, you know, guiding spirits between the worlds and that really we were like wow yeah yeah Yeah, Monica's show sort of brought that idea into our world and I think I had to sit down and think about that one a lot many times you know approaching labor and then I put my birth story in the book because for me it was totally an encounter with death you know and and having people there who kind of held my hand as I I truly felt like I was between worlds and so close to so much loss and with such an understanding of what loss meant that I had never had before. Like I, I just never knew what it could be to lose something until it was so close. So I think there's so much of the human experience on this planet that is just devastatingly alive with such profound pain and incredible magic. And we sort of become numb to it with our daily lives and the pressure of trying to keep food on the table and keep our heads above water and and that just seems like something that I want to rip open with joy and beauty, you know, so to get to to get to talk about my experience of the miracle of birth in the context of this book was magic. What's the better way to say that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's a very unique experience that women get to have. You get to experience it right there, right in your bodies fully. And some would argue that this is why, you know, patriarchy developed was in resistance to that great unknown power. Some would argue that. Yes. Well, in this book that I just mentioned, there's a lot said about that. Yeah. Well, I look forward to listening to that episode, Tobia. <laughs> <laughs> 
I do too. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm very curious to hear how it turns out, as I'm curious yeah. to find out how any of my interviews turn out. Right. <laughs> I know the feeling. I recently uh, had to re-record an interview because I, I was so excited to interview this person that I made a, a mistake. It only seems to happen when I'm just like deliriously excited and I made a mistake and maybe it was Zoom, but maybe it was me. And so we had to interview again. And I think it was just more mind exploding the second time like there was just so much more I knew about this food historian and scientist and witch and her ideas about fermentation and stuff I was like god I could just interview the same people over and over again and still have no idea what was gonna happen mm, and wonderful. I think that that's a great example of this sort of like non-binary universe that we exist in where you think something terrible has happened but really it turned out to be for the better and I think that happens a lot. We set ourselves up to think like, good, bad, good, bad. And really, we just have to be like, this is something that happens. It'll be interesting to see how it turns out. Yes. And in our culture, in our society, we do so much to try to control the environment around us so that we can stay comfortable as much as possible. Yeah. And that's something that's like literal and metaphorical as well, for sure. And in many ways, that is life-killing. Yeah. Absolutely. We've proven <laughs> yeah. as a species that we are willing to destroy the very air that we breathe to line a billionaire's pocket. So, <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's very real and, and obviously something that we as witches are hoping, striving to live our lives counter to. Mm. And I wasn't even thinking to that extreme at that moment. But yeah, that too. Definitely. Yeah. 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 It's, you know... I said somewhere in the book, like, no love is too deep and no change is too small. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I do just want to go back because I feel like it would be a, a missed opportunity to talk about, you know, the sort of violence that can be done by binaries and also gender binaries to not acknowledge that there are people who identify and are men or are non-binary who are experiencing childbirth and experiencing carrying children. And I don't think that that experience, you know, I don't think we need to be essential about that experience. In fact, I think we somehow can miss the sort of the grain of true wisdom that comes from the non-binary perspective when we force it into a, an essentialism about gender. So I'm sorry for looping back, but, but it was sort of hovering in my mind that I, I know people who have experienced it who are men and who are non-binary and it's so much more challenging and more terrifying because there is no space to sort of be included and to have your sort of particular magic of that experience included so and yeah I mean that's something that we get into in the book is that when people don't agree with you it seems like they don't just disagree with you they try to erase your existence you know it's not just like I don't like these kind of people it's like oh no these kinds of people don't exist that's not real that's not true and you know when recent i started the podcast and by extension the book we were learning about all of these people that history had really like and they hadn't erased them because we were able to learn about them but certainly recent i both have post-secondary education and we had never heard of any of these people <laughs> you know yeah. we had heard of the men that stood in front of them like charles gardner and alistair crowley for example yates but when we looked behind them, there were all these amazing people that our educations had not bothered to mention. So again, I think all of us 
it's 2021 and we all need to be deep in our unlearning and relearning. And the podcast and the book is definitely like, come learn with us. You know, we're not the experts on what the future is going to hold, but we can definitely craft something in our imagination that maybe has more justice than the world that we live in now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So getting to the title, Missing Witches, you mentioned that in your education, you hadn't come across any of those witches that that you write about in the book. I'd come across two of them, um, Lala Shwari and um, H.P. Blavatsky. I think many people have come across her. But the others I had never heard of, or I've heard of Zora Neale Hurston, Mm -hmm. but I didn't really know anything about her, and I found her to be absolutely fascinating. Yeah, and I do want to say, like, I considered Zora Neale Hurston because, again, I I had encountered her in studying literature, but I thought, oh, is she too famous? And then I was like, you know what? I want to tell this story. I don't care. (laughs) I want to tell this story. Right. Maybe she's not as missing as some of the other people that we profiled, but I want to tell this story. And then so many people came to me afterward and went, I had never heard of Zora Neale Hurston. So, yeah, the missing is subjective. The craziest one to me is Enheduanna. You know, this is the world's first known named poet. And I say this in the book. I have a lit degree and I had never heard of her. Say her name again. Enheduanna. Oh, right. Yes. The priestess from what is now Iraq. And to me, it's something that should have been, like, high trivia, you know? That should have been on every episode of Jeopardy. But, <laughs> but for some reason, it wasn't important for whoever created the curriculum of my education to mention this person, not one, in the 20 years that I spent in school. And that, to me, is the impetus of the project, really, at its core, is that we were blown away that these people weren't household names. You know? And that's also so related to the way the concept of God has been proliferated in our culture. It's had a kind of a male... Kind of. Yeah. (laughs) Right. We have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and that's always been really funny to me, that if you think of a family, generally it's the Father, the Mother, and the Son, right? But we had to get the woman out of there entirely and replace her with the Holy Spirit. Replace her with a ghost. Yeah. <laughs> now we can't have a woman in there. Let's let's put a ghost in there. <laughs> so yeah, to me, God is separate from what humans have done with the idea of God, though, for sure. Yes, and also supplanting the goddess with a male notion of God, particularly a monotheistic male notion of a God that eclipses everything in that typical patriarchal way. And we unlearn more of that every day. I spoke to someone recently about Maria Gambutas, and I wrote about her in the book, and she found these, like, cave drawings, and you know, Paleolithic, super, very, very ancient. And there was one that was like, if you look at it, it's like the shape of a uterus. And, of course, this became masculinized, and the researchers were like, well, this is a ram's head. In other places, the triangle, which is sort of the, again, I get into this in the book, but the symbol of woman, this triangle, and that was masculinized, and they decided these were arrows. These were all war monuments, you know, that ram's head. So even when we had proof of, you know, a peaceful and goddess-worshipping society, the researchers went in and decided that they didn't even consider that, you know, it was a uterus and a, and a vulva or whatever they were thinking back then. It was an arrow and a ram's head. And so that's the story that went out. 
And that was another fascinating part of the book, talking about her great discoveries and, and her thesis about human societal history. Maria Gimbutas, yes. Yeah. Yes, very much so. Because it sort of gave feminists this notion that an egalitarian society was possible. Whether it's possible today, we're still working on it, but we had a scientific frame of reference for its existence. But I do want to be very clear about the fact that her contemporaries largely thought she was a kook, that she was a weird feminist hippie with kooky ideas about what the kooky paleolithic people did. And it wasn't until many, many, many years later where the science caught up with Maria and suggested that her theories were correct. So again, I I carry this with me, you know, people think I'm crazy. (laughs) People think I'm weird. People think, you know, my ideas are weird. And so when I read stories like Maria's, she knew, she knew she would be vindicated. And so I carry that in my heart. It's okay if they think I'm crazy, you know. And again, you mentioned Zora Neale Hurston. She was buried in an unmarked grave. You know, at the moment that she died, you know, she was nobody. Nobody. And yet here we are. She's published many books after her death, and we're talking about her now. So I really want witches and all people to carry that in your heart that, like, just because people think that you're strange doesn't mean that you're wrong. Yeah, in the book on Ostara, we talk about Maria Sabina and our sort of suggestion for this time of year for ritual. You know, it's the spring cleaning feeling, or, you know, maybe it's a time to put a woman on your altar. Like, is there is there a woman in your tradition or in your family or sort of in your lineage of thought? Or, or if you're a scientist, is there a woman scientist you could explore? And, you know, your altar could be a bookshelf. Your altar could be, you know, a desktop screenshot. I don't know. It's really up to you. It could be a mug. But, like, is there a way to find a thinker whose ideas have been marginalized, and especially a woman, and to bring them into your heart and into your core at this season and let it kind of guide new questions for you. And again, that brings us back to the title of the book, Missing Witches. Mm. Yeah. There's so many ways in which we thought we were missing them. I mean, you know, we speak French here in Montreal, and, you know, it's always stuck with me in my mind that the French were... I miss you was to my mom. And grammatically what that means is you were missing from me. Like you're a piece of me, you know? And it was really that that motivated this work of research for us and, and continues to motivate it. You know, like we don't feel like we've, we've solved anything or reached any kind of endpoints. It's a constant project for us to be inspired and educated by these people and their ideas. And I'm also working on an episode about Diane De Prima right now. And one of the insights that she really brought home for me was that many of these very accepted central thinkers in mathematics or science, men and women, we've cut their magical ideas out of the history. So, you know, we can embrace John Dee as a mathematician and Newton as a scientist, but, like, let's just never talk about the time that they <laughs> they spent on conjuring or <laughs> on magical practices, you know? <laughs> yeah, this, this isn't in the book because we wrote it after we submitted the manuscript, but hopefully it'll be in the next book, telling the story of Harriet Tubman. Yeah. And everybody's <laughs> heard of Harriet Tubman. But I'll ask you, Tonio, did you know that Harriet Tubman was a witch? I didn't, but it doesn't surprise me. Yeah, even when we have heard of the people, the witch part is the missing part often, Mm -hmm. just like Risa said. If they're not missing, then the witch part is. Mm -hmm. 
And we, we maybe use that word which as a shorthand for the ways that we're thinking about this nature-based spirituality. And, and that doesn't mean that we want to assign witchhood to people that didn't identify that way. It means for us, as we're thinking about what it means for us to be witches, we think that there's some important thinkers that are missing from that idea. And Harriet Tubman's spirituality and her relationship with ancestors and her unique relationship with the Bible that's very much grounded in an African-American spirituality that doesn't see a contradiction between Christianity and working with spirit in a way that's different from other kinds of Christianity. That for us is like contains some very important and fundamental insights about liberation for all of us. And on the subject of Christianity, I think that that's why we focus not so much on deities. It comes up, obviously, but our focus is on real people because, again, like I was raised in the church, so I, I struggle conceptually with deities. I tend to understand them more as metaphors, but I'm sort of always expanding my understanding of what that means. But the people in the book are largely real people who did real things. And we might think of them as supernatural, but, you know, they were people. And that, to me, is more amazing than a supernatural creature coming down and, you know, doing their magic. It's more amazing to me when, quote-unquote, regular people do magical things. And, of course, like you say, Risa, we cast a very wide net with the word witch. You know, it's up for debate, and we recognize and we understand that. But it did seem like the best shorthand for what we were trying to talk about. Yeah, I think that's such an important point for us when we were originally kind of conceptualizing the podcast and then the book. People would write to us, you know, when we found an audience for the podcast and we started like feeling like we were finding our people and it was so exciting, this feeling of a web of, of listeners. We call it, you know, the cousin we create between our ears. And people would write into us and ask us to cover goddesses. And while those stories are totally, totally fascinating and you know I can spend a lot of time looking at how those mythologies changed and were used by different systems of power what I really want to know is what people were doing and especially women and people of marginalized genders like where were they what were they doing and most importantly what were they thinking what were their ideas what were their ideas about the world what was their philosophy what was their spirituality because that's what we're missing, I think. And and I think that listening to those ideas saves us in, in a real way, you know. It saves us from this, this oversimplified individualist sort of hunger that we all feel we're suffering from, I think. I would love for you to talk about a witch that has really turned you guys on. Well, maybe, Risa, we could talk about how we reenacted Monica's show. Yeah, yeah. Just even flipping through the book, I, I get weeping and emotional about all these stories. And at Ostara, I think a lot about Maria Sabina, talking about someone who went missing and impacted our world in such a fundamental way. But Monica shows, she was one of the first names I put on the list. Um, you know, I had the initial couple of names when I contacted Amy, and it's truly been a collaboration from the beginning, you know, and that has been like one of the great gifts of my life, is getting to collaborate on this project with Amy. But also with Monica's show, we She's been this sort of distant collaborator, this painter, activist, feminist, you know, just a woman who wrote about pain and and about the miracle of birth and for her, the trauma of a medicalized birth, losing her children, being drawn into some of the shittiest of the new age, you know, sort of manipulative, patriarchal, kind of the stuff that wants to kind of sell you a quick fix and keep you oppressed. 
and she just raged against it and so eloquently and so beautifully and spent so much time digging into the history of women and history of archaeologists who were discovering, you know, what women had truly thought and what they had worshipped and their relationship with the moon and, you know, the discovery of language and, you know, the relationship between mothers and children and how they impacted the evolution of language or the first calendar being a marking of a woman's menstrual cycle. You know, she was so so passionate and so eloquent and such an example for us too of, of a pair of women collaborators. Um, she wrote with Barbara Moore, they wrote back and forth together in sometimes very extreme poverty, trying to tell these women's histories and these women's stories. So for us to find her story and her paintings, which are truly transcendent, you can't look at them without feeling that you're sort of slipping between worlds. And I think it's important to note here, Risa, that she was threatened with obscenity charges for a painting that she did of the act of giving birth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A very non-graphic depiction, and she was threatened with obscenity charges. Again, I, I think that that's a really important note, that all of these people came up against resistance and persevered, yeah. which, again, is very humbling and empowering for me. Yeah, and when she came out to her feminist group and talked about wanting to have a group for lesbian feminists, she lost a lot of friends. When she, you know, partnered with a man afterwards to have a child, she sort of wrote in a letter that that was like a retreat to safety. I mean, she was so, so open and so vulnerable in her seeking for a true life for herself, like true to who she truly truly was. And when those obscenity charges were brought against her, she was just reeling from this birth and she was just in so much pain, you know, but for her to continue to write and research and work and paint. And she was a super active activist, you know, until the end of her life. You know, she shows up in all of these kinds of like very like punk walks and, and all of these places. So there's this, this sort of iconic story of her and it's sort of mistold in some of her obituaries. And the way they tell it is that she was with a circle of women and they came to a moment at a cathedral prepared to kind of disrupt the ceremony and to sing about the goddess and to sing about the burning times and to sort of reject patriarchy and the violence of patriarchy to take over the pulpit and to take over the church and the way the story gets told in some of the obituaries is that the bishop reached out his hand to them and let them sing and triumphed you know a deity beyond binary or whatever and that's not at all how she tells the story you know it was exhausting and they had been dancing all night and they came in and they were mocked and rejected and they stood on the altar and they sang and they left, and they felt in that moment uplifted and changed. And they weren't welcomed into the heart of that church by any means, but they took a spot with song, you know. And that story really resonated with us. So, yeah, when, 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 when we were invited to give a bit of a talk at a Gnostic conference that was to take place in a church, Risa and I automatically both had the same thought, which was, well, we need to reenact Monica's protest. We had been invited, so obviously, you know, you can see how times have changed <laughs> just in and of that, but we brought people with us. We sang the goddess song on the pulpit of a church, you know, with the colors from the stained glass beaming through upon us. And then later, super interesting, we spoke to an astrologer who compared the dates of Monica's protest with our talk, and there was a lot of similarity 
a lot of similarity. So in that way, I feel like we're continuing this collaboration. We're still collaborating with Monica Show. Yeah, and then in the 80s as well, she was, she talks about walking with a Bristol women's spirituality group across land that was closed for munitions testing, and they walked across it, and it was belting, and the munitions testing was forced to stop as they walked to Silbury Hill. And she said it was Starhawk, and she says, Starhawk led a grounding meditation to center ourselves, and then we took the decision to walk through the fences, irrespective of the firing. In the meantime, women were facing the barbed wire fences while singing Earth is Our Mother. And I had joined them for a while, but I was overwhelmed with tears and grief at the sight of those so beautiful women and the thought of the patriarchal wasteland of destruction and barrenness that lay in front of us once we had entered the plain. We had been dreaming our land. Many pagans and people of the craft have a love for the land and a reverence for the earth, but many too do not realize that this is not enough and that one must also take political direct action against those that ill-treat and exploit her. And it was this understanding that fired our women in our work. And there's a quote from your book, Magic comes from the earth. We're alive and conscious because she is in-breathing and out-breathing. We alternate from self-love and nurturing to the work of activism and remaking and re-enchanting the world. Yeah, the idea of re-enchanting the world is something that I think is, is echoing with a lot of people in our community right now. It comes from Sylvia Federici such an amazing historian and Marxist and philosophical and political thinker. And she's sort of inspiring us to think about where and how that enchantment has been lost and where we make spaces and physically claim common land and spiritual spaces and spaces of ritual that re-enchant our lives and re-enchant our world. Could you talk more about that notion of re-enchanting the world and re-enchantment in general, and how it works in the world? I can tell you that something I've been thinking about this week after interviewing Dr. Julia Skinner from Root Kitchen, it just uh, kind of lit a new way of thinking about it for me. I mean, I think on a basic level, the idea that there can be a feeling of spirit, a feeling of magic in life is something that we have access to when we're little. If we are privileged to not have a lot of childhood trauma, we can have access to a sense that the world is enchanted. Um, you know, that there's my daughter walks down the paths near us and introduces herself to all the small trees. And that to me is like very much a way of living with the enchantment of the world. But then Dr. Skinner was talking about you know, the bacteria that we are of a community with. There's many pounds of this sort of living bacteria in us, and it's on every surface, and we've been collaborating with them our whole lives and the whole lives of our species. They're part of what makes us successful. And in this fundamental way, you know, we're connected with this great unknown, you know. On the tree of life, the world of bacteria is immense. It's so much more enormous than all of the animals and plants that we think of as being part of life. And it's in us and it's on every surface and we communicate with it constantly and we don't know what it is. And there's this possibility of understanding that everything is alive and it's not a metaphor, you know. <laughs> it's all really, really f***ing alive and we don't have to think that we're alone. And we don't have to live with violence, destroying from it and, and taking from it as much as we can. You know, we can 
we can use that as a way of understanding the true collaboration that exists between us and all life. And I think, you know, ritual and, you know, Dr. Skinner talks about working with her different fermentations as a meditative practice, you know, mm-hmm. which I relate to poking the bubbles out of my kimchi or whatever that we're sitting in a room now with beer bubbling away. That when meditation can be something that we're doing as part of our daily lives, using our hands and interact with the material of the world, that we can come closer to a sense of the real magic and enchantment that is there. And that can be life-changing. Yeah, because if you look at the sacred geometry of a flower, and again, this isn't this isn't woo-woo, <laughs> you know, maybe the word sacred, but, you know, we're talking about enchanting and re-enchanting. So I think we've talked a lot with a lot of our guests about how we make things sacred. But it's there. I think we feel compelled in this modern world to think of being a realist as being a pessimist. And I don't think that's the case. I think that we can re-enchant our minds by recognizing that you can be a realist and an optimist at the same time. And also really looking at a flower. Really looking at the absolute effing miracle of a flower and how these shapes and these things are echoed in our bodies. And like Risa, you were saying, these teams of bacteria that are responsible for the functioning of our bodies. That's amazing. Let's just pay attention to those things and allow ourselves to be amazed by them. There are so many bits of science coming out now about the theory of awe, A-W-E, awe, being in Mm. awe of something, and how beneficial that is for our brain, for our neurology, to have that experience of awe. And so I think re-enchanting the world is something that we do very, very consciously. And it's not just about praying over a candle to make the candle sacred. It's also about the lens through which we observe the world. Yeah, we say in the book, uh, quote, artist and scientist Whitefeather Hunter is saying magic is inherently anti-capitalist. And we wrote, you know, magic isn't an end goal and it's not a product. It's a way of seeing and being in the world that echoes with nature. And this magical philosophy, agency, and personal power are balanced and deeply integrated with community care. And then, you know, we sort of talk about that idea from Paul Gunn Allen that the root of oppression is loss of memory. So for us, like digging into what's been lost is for us a, a dedication to re-enchantment as a way of, of resisting oppression. And again, not just like lost, like whoopsie, but like deliberately erased. Mm. And there's another, there are a lot of great lines in this book. There's another one, being a witch is a political act of defiance. Yes. Fuck yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. That's because of the history because of the history of the word you know you know going into it and and again this is something like i said at the very beginning of this interview you know i i went looking for witch books when i was a kid and you know there are a lot of like fairy tales and stuff like that but when i got older i was you know more in the the non-fiction section and there everything that there was for me to read about witches at that time was from the perspective of the witch hunter mm-hmm. stories about witch trials the Salem witch trials, you know, things happening in the UK, all over the world, really. So the story was, if you're a witch, they're going to get you. You are transgressive. You are other. You are a freak. Some of us are more willing to wear the freak flag (laughs) than others. But yeah, by declaring yourself a witch, it's a transgressive act. 
for sure, because you're saying, I see the world differently than what society told me to. We have to understand that there is a truth and then there is a story that we've been told. But we also have to recognize that both of those things have an equal influence on our lives. Sometimes the story that we're told has a much larger influence on our life than the truth. Yes. There's a strange line between fiction and nonfiction, and even saying that that history is fiction, because it's all made up. And even when, you know, people who scoff at us for using the word witch or roll their eyes or think that we're flakes, but I mean, to us, it's the most realistic. It's the moon. Are you going to try to tell me the moon doesn't exist? (laughs) (laughs) But of course, the way you see the moon and relate to the moon can be very different from the way some other people do. Of course, because we put in the effort of re-enchanting within our lives. <laughs> it's very easy to do. You just have to watch it for a couple of days. Very easy to re-enchant the moon. The moon is so spectacular that it's very easy to recognize the magic in that if you look. Talk about your own direct experience of that. Well, there's a lot I wrote about the moon. The cycle of the moon is 28 days. And that's also the menstrual cycle. So that to me was very, very interesting. (laughs) And once again, showed this like abject and undeniable connection that we have. Again, it's not like a quote unquote spiritual connection. It's a physical connection that we as people have to the planets in the sky. And so a lot of witches have sort of, uh, Aretha, you spoke to a a moon magician. So you can speak to that, but I do just want to say, like, sometimes the moon is dark and sometimes the moon is full. And if you just start paying attention to that, you can recognize how that affects you. Or you can use it to your benefit and say, the moon is new, it's a blank slate, this is when I'm going to start my project. Or the moon is full, I'm going to be awake all night anyway because (laughs) it's shining in here, this is when I'm going to finish this project or tie up loose ends. So again, it's, it's a practice. Yeah, I remember when we were first kind of gathering with our improvised coven of badass lady witches, I sort of stumbled on this piece of lore that, you know, if your menstrual cycle, if you were a person who menstruates, was in time so that you were fertile when the moon was full, then, you know, you were aligned with the forces of birth and creation. But if it was aligned so that you were fertile when the moon was dark, then you might be a little bit dangerous. You might be like aligned with acts of creation or of power or, you know, there might have been this idea in cultures that at a different time where, you know, we were less messed up by all of the unnatural light that women would mostly be in sync with each other. And if you weren't, then you would be someone to watch for. And I don't know how much of that is real and how much of that is sort of storytelling. But at the time, as a bunch of women who were in our late 30s and nowhere near getting pregnant, that was really empowering, you know, (laughs) to be like, and to notice that actually none of us were ovulating in time with a full moon cycle. And we were pretty deep in our lives of like creating our careers and creating our art and creating who we were going to be and creating our like real voices and real desires. And maybe wanting some of that traditional family stuff or maybe realizing we didn't at all. And so 
that was a moment for me of being like, oh, you and me, Moon. Like, it's not, it's not all so straightforward, but I'm going to go around in circles over and over again in time with you. And we're going to be allied together in what those circles look like and what they mean during my time on this spinning rock. Will you spin around and I'll spin around and we'll be together. And that might mean that I am like ripe for writing a book and changing the world. And then in another part of my life, it might mean that the stars align and I'm, I'm ready to bring a human into it all. And by extension, the wheel of the year is the same sort of idea. It's just these moments where you can check in with yourself about certain things that are echoed in nature. Yeah, marking time in a way, in terms of whatever is going on for you personally. Yeah, I mean, brain scientists don't really know how we have an idea of time. You know, there's no, there's no place in the brain that ticks like a clock, you know. And so it seems like our best guess is that we're keeping track of experiences and we're making guesses about how long things are and how short things are. And some people are better at guessing, you know, when they do tests and MRIs or whatever. Some people are better at guessing how long a period of time was. And some people experience time more slowly. Some people experience it more quickly. I feel like, you know, the pain of being in a menstruating body has always anchored me in time in a way that seems different than, you know, men I've been close to or non-menstruating bodies I've been close to. Or before it started for me where I sort of felt like shuttling forward in this crazy experience of time and it didn't have this cyclical nature at all. So I think looking at the at the things around us that can give us a grounding and an experience of time can really help us understand the importance of us and ourselves in this moment, this fleeting moment, and what we're truly capable of. And again, like I say, like these become these opportunities to check in with ourselves. We might go years without ever asking ourselves the hard questions, but when you have like, okay, it's Lisa, I need to consider this, or okay, it's Yule, I need to consider this, it's an excuse too you know maybe you're busy maybe your life is so overwhelming but it's like today is a special day it's a holiday you can sort of make it a stat holiday in your life you know you don't necessarily have to take the day off work but like every year on this day I'm going to do this like we do with the first day of school or Labor Day or Christmas yeah and you can pay attention to what people are like and what your feelings are like for kind of a week around the sabbats, I think, I started to notice that people in my life got kind of like haywire <laughs> around them. <laughs> Everyone seems to be like in flux, you know, and, and it's because these are small season changes. And so we are very much tied, you know, we're literally all of the water in our bodies is being pulled. You know, we feel everything around us wanting to grow or flourishing or, or beginning to die and preparing for that cycle. So giving ourselves a moment to notice that we are in a world where those processes are happening and they're happening on our bodies and on the bacteria in our bodies and all of that too, I think can be really grounding. And yeah, noticing that everyone is getting a little sketchy haywire can be very like, oh, okay, guys, we're going to be okay. Like this is a moment for you to notice that you are capable of change and maybe light a candle, (laughs) maybe make up a ritual, you know, with your friends. I'm talking with Risa Dickens and Amy Torok authors of this wonderful new book we're talking about, Missing Witches, Recovering True Histories of Feminist Magic. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour. When you started this last bit with neuroscientists and how they haven't figured out how we mark time or 
recognize time. I thought of the moon and gravitational effects, and you talked about how the water in our body gets pulled and pushed. And, yeah. And it just occurred to me that in our bodies, we naturally have a sense of time based upon the rhythms, the ebbs and flows of these gravitational forces. And the moon, of course, has the most powerful gravitational effect. But all of the planets and even the stars have a certain degree of what could be called a gravitational effect upon us. Yes. Yeah, I just want to bring that into uh, the notion of astrology, because I'm a born cynic. Everybody who knows me knows this. I have like a permanently furrowed brow of cynicism where I'm like, really? (laughs) Me too. Me too. Yeah. And I think that's a good place to come to when you're talking about anything, anything, period to have that like critical awareness about you. But, you know, I grew up with the normal like, oh, what, what's your sign and what's your horoscope say and stuff like that. And it kind of seemed like a lot of baloney and isn't this silly and isn't this a good bit of fun. The more I learned about it and the more I thought about it, it was exactly what you were saying. If, if the moon moves the ocean, which we know it does, and if we are water, which we know we are, does it not stand to reason that the moon is moving us in some way? And therefore, does it not also stand to reason that the movement of our planetary system could influence our behavior? And to me, the answer is yes. Is it possible? Yes. And that's when I sort of changed all of my thinking about astrology in that very moment when I came to that. Yeah, that was my exact thoughts about astrology fairly recently when I thought about it more deeply that, yeah, astrology actually makes perfect rational sense. Yeah. And now, you know, go into the town square and tell the world that you're physically connected to the moon and watch them mock you. (laughs) (laughs) Like, you know, and so when we we're unlearning and unpacking and we get to these places, we're like, well, yeah, duh. Then we have to investigate, like, well, why did we even have to unpack this? You know, why was this seemingly really simplistic knowledge? Like, why were we alienated from this? Again, we come always back to capitalist patriarchy, white mm-hmm. supremacy, hegemony, these things. And so, again, the, the re-enchantment of our lives becomes digging out the why and the wait what and the hmm. Mm-hmm. I want to unpack it all and question it all, but I also want to share this new idea for me from someone I interviewed this week, Dr. Marina Magdual. She writes about Black and diasporic spirituality. And um, we were talking about how, you know, Black women in particular only show up in the archives when they're like bought or sold or murdered, you know, that for a lot of archival work, that's the only time you're going to find black women. And she said, and I'm like paraphrasing terribly, but the idea totally hit me. But she said she's like delighted to embrace that we won't know. We were thinking about Cecil Fatiman from the Haitian Revolution in particular. Like we actually won't be able to pin down, you know, who exactly was there at this moment at the birth of the Haitian Revolution and this, you know, these practitioners of voodoo and and who was the priestess and how old was she and what was her life like? She can't be pinned down. She escapes the archives. And that means that she exists in multiplicity now, you know, that that her power exceeds the archives. She's all those things and more. The uncarved block of limitless potential. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I was just sort of shaking with her power in that moment and that new understanding that, you know, 
we, especially as settlers and as, you know, participants in white supremacy, you know, we have a lot of unpacking and questioning um, and truth-telling and, and listening to do, but there's also this incredible power in knowing that people who weren't in the archives can't be contained. And that's a really wonderful thing, because when we contain things, we contain them within the context of our previous understanding and, and ways of yeah. seeing and knowing. Yeah, exactly. I love what you were just talking about. It reminded me of, I was just listening to a, a radio program talking about the way they measure GDP and what they measure and what they don't measure, which, of course, mm. we've heard over and over again many times about how um, like women's work is not counted. <laughs> so it's like half of the labor, half of the right. work on the planet is dismissed or erased and how sure. they measure they measure destructive things as being positive for right. for for growth and GDP and they ignore the productivity and essential nature of life. Yeah. Someone did a study and they tried to figure out if you had to pay a housewife to do everything that she does, how much would she earn? And it was somewhere around ninety to a hundred thousand dollars a year. And this is, of course, unpaid labor. And I feel compelled to mention that women were not allowed to own property because they were property. And that once they were allowed into the system, there were many, you know, then they were allowed to vote. And this was not without a big battle. And women died. But women also weren't allowed to have credit cards in their own name until very, very recently. I want to say the 1970s in America anyway. And so this is on purpose. We have kept large swaths of the population out of even the ability to earn their own money, let alone control how it's spent. Yeah, you look at, you know, the quote-unquote professionalism of, you know, the Brewers Guild, similar things happening in healthcare or in weaving in other parts of the world, that when industrialization came in as a force and there was a push to industrialize those things and professionalize them, you know, they were made to be gilded industries and women weren't allowed to be parts of those guilds. So even though they were the main practitioners of those industries beforehand, again, from Julia Skinner and from our interview that's coming up in this season in the podcast, but yeah, so many explicit ways that women's participation was excluded. And like very specifically, the medical profession, some have traced the witch hunts to the desire to get rid of the witches who were the healers of the community, and once medicine became a business, they had to erase those people who were doing it for their community or in collaboration, in, you know, in trust and care and love with their community. There's a lot of that. Risa, you brought up, like, brewers. Now, I wanted to mention the word spinster, which I read recently, like, now the word spinster means an old unmarried woman. But apparently where this word came from was that this is one of the only jobs that unmarried women could get. And so they would have these sort of like spinning places and the spinsters would earn their own money. And now we hear spinster and it's just some tragic unmarried woman. But what the spinster really was, was a woman with agency. Maybe and she craft. was tragic. Yeah. And craft. Yeah. Yeah. Going back to another great line in the book, every strong woman is a witch and she's always hunted. Yeah. It's Cedar Roy Chakraverti said that in her book. Again, one of the first 
which is that we wrote down and wanted to dedicate an episode and dedicate research and writing to just an, an awesome thinker. And, you know, one with really powerful lived experience about the ongoing witch hunts. You know, she's been at the forefront of women accused of and brutalized for being called witches in communities so that they could have their property taken from them and be isolated. You know, so often coming down to like a little bit of an inheritance, like a moment of financial freedom for somebody that gets stolen with the accusation of witch. Like you say, Risa, this is happening like in Ghana right now. There are a thousand women in a camp who were accused of witchcraft and driven from their homes. So it's definitely a witch hunt is not like only, you know, a medieval or a Victorian idea. It's definitely happening all the time, all over the world. And I do want to point to Ipsita as a role model because she was born into a certain level of affluence. It's all relative, but a certain level of affluence. And she used her privilege to go and fight for people who are more vulnerable than her. And so that's something that I take from Ipsita every day, that we need to use our privilege to destroy our privilege. And I think that's where a lot of people get caught up. Yeah. I love that concept of using our privilege to erase our privilege. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm sure there's someone who said it first, it wasn't me. <laughs> <laughs> but I think a lot of people have said it since that we need to use our privilege to erase our privilege. And that's the only positive function of privilege, is to speak for people who are more vulnerable than you are. Right. In a recent book that I did an interview for, this woman talked about privilege being power without responsibility. Mm. Mm. I love that. Because, yeah, I think, like, there has to be some accountability for there to be justice. There has to be that responsibility that you mentioned in order for us to have justice. I was talking to a, a yogi who told me that where there is no balance, there will be tension. And they were talking about the physical body. But like, once again, it's very easy for us to use that as a metaphor. If there is no balance, there will be tension. If there is an imbalance in your relationship, there will be tension in your relationship. If there isn't a racial imbalance in your society, there will be racial tension. If there is unbalance, then there will be tension. So we have to recognize it. So we have these binaries in our culture, and they proliferate in our language. And you just talked about how when we don't have balance in these binaries that we've created, and many of them are artificial binaries, and some of them we totally accept without question. I would argue that those are the same. <laughs> the imposed and the ones that we accept without yeah. question. I think they've all been imposed, really, mm -hmm. by my way of thinking. Mm -hmm. Part of how we get divorced from this great multiple expression of reality, how we get alienated from that, is when we're told to believe that you're this or that, or that any given situation is this or that. And none of us are this or that. We are all soup. <laughs> Obviously, the gender binary is the one that's sort of on the forefront of our conversation right now. But I believe that this extends to anything that's put up in opposition. Something that I go back to a lot, and I do mention in the book, is this good and bad. And Risa, it's like you were saying, like, you had a technical difficulty, but then the second time you did your interview it was so much better. You know, and even looking at ourselves, well, I did this thing, so I am bad. Or conversely, I did this other thing, so I'm good. And we are not that. People are not that. Everything exists on this spectrum of perception and reality. And this also relates to alchemy. 
which is all about changing of forms and mm. transforming spaces and transforming the way we see and think and relate to things. Yeah, Risa, do you want to talk about hermetic alchemy? I think the idea that resonates for all of us so much is, you know, the, the kind of core concept from hermeticism, the as above, so below, in that, you know, we can think about that in so many different ways, you know, that the sort of vastness of our universe expanding out with endless and infinite stars and dark matter is the same here below the sort of endless and infinite bacteria that are all around us, the endless and infinite sort of possibilities of life. You know, I I struggle sometimes with the idea that, you know, there is no good and no bad. That's that's not a reality for me, but I don't think that's what you're saying, Amy. No, yeah, yeah, definitely. We can point to things that are like, yeah, that was yeah. <laughs> like I'm not a relativist, you know. Like I, I don't believe that any action in a different circumstance could be considered good. Like I, I definitely think that with more understanding, we can approach justice. And but yeah, I'm sort of deviating from the idea of, of hermeticism into thinking more about how things flip and how that sort of, I connect it too sometimes to the outside and the inside, that like an inside perspective within a community can be really just... Well, that, that's the second line, right? As above, yeah. so below, as within, so without. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I think that's how we can see healing ourselves as being an act of global healing mm -hmm. in the sense that people who do not hate themselves are less likely to take it out on those around them. Mm -hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah. And we can find that the patience and understanding to move along the networks of perspective to connect with each other again and to sort of rise. Each of us find a, a space to rise. You know, by having... Sort of conjure like a radical compassion. Mm-hmm. And often when I think of alchemy, I come back to the notion of creating medicine out of poison mm. and art out I of... I marked that section. Shall <laughs> I read it? Sure. Because that, that's the one that I marked. So I'm, I'm super glad you brought it up. Thank you. So yeah, this is from the book. Healers and scientists can harness the power of natural poisons and turn them into medicines. It's a very witchy thing to do. We make medicine from poison art out of grief, grab calm from inside a storm. So what do we as witches do with disappointments? Poisons hidden among the flowers, thorns among the roses. We harness their sharpness and power to carve a welcome sign and hang it up on our doors, on the missing witch's door and the doorway of our hearts. Come inside, join our circle. You are welcome here. And I wanted to read that section because not just this, like, notion of binary or non-binary existence, but also because these people that we profile and often the people that we talk to and often ourselves in our own lives, we take pain and we turn it into something else. And again, I'm not suggesting that we seek out trauma because people say your trauma makes you strong. No, I don't buy that for a second. What I do think is that your trauma can shed a light on how f***ing powerful you actually are and how strong you actually are. And so that's the one silver lining <laughs> in the dark cloud of trauma, that it can really show you how strong you are. And that's what we found again, like 
all of the people that we profiled in the book, they came up against resistance, all of them. And so for me, if we can recontextualize our pain as an impetus for action, it seems to me that there are two kinds of people there. And again, (laughs) two (laughs) kinds of people in this total binary universe, but you know what I mean? Some people get hurt and they say, well, it happened to me, so that's life and I'm going to go hurt people. And then there are people who get hurt and they say, I never want that to happen to anyone ever again. And I'm going to work so that it doesn't, you know, and these are different choices that we make with our pain, our inevitable pain, which live in the world, the inevitable pain of living in the world. But we do. And these people in this book showed us that you can look and say, okay, again, for example, Faith Ringgold. Faith Ringgold says she got her education, she went to college, and then she had to teach herself because what was missing was anything African, basically, from her entire education. What was missing was anything African. And so she had to go and teach herself. And again, that's the same with Sora Neale Hurston. They looked at the world and they said, there's something wrong, there's something missing, this is not right. And instead of just folding in on that pain, they filled the hole. They attempted to fill the hole. And so again, for me, that taking natural poisons and turning them into medicine is something that I'm always striving to do so that I don't get bogged down by things that go wrong, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's quite an art form. And probably the most graphic example would be how black people have taken the tremendous suffering and grief that they've experienced in the last several hundred years of slavery and turned it into singing the blues. Yeah, Faith Ringgold talked about that too. And that was her idea. And to do so is not to excuse the horrors of slavery, but to recognize that this art form bloomed out of that. And then, of course, we recognize how that was then co-opted by white people who repackaged it and resold it. You know, the cycle continued. Mm -hmm. But again, I think it's really important to re-examine what we were taught in school. So it's up to us, as Faith Ringgold said, you know, you get your education and then you educate yourself. It has to be done. Well, I think in our culture, you know, once we become adults, we then have to, at a certain point when we realize the need for it, we have to unlearn everything we've learned. Right. Because there was an agenda. Like, I believe that this was not an accident, that patriarchy isn't an accident, that religious hegemony isn't an accident, that capitalism isn't an accident. Right. Um, it's, it's his story. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so funny because an old friend of ours is a filmmaker, and she posted this story about how women just weren't getting major studio directing jobs. And someone commented, oh, it's just because women prefer to be indie directors. And so I jumped in. I was like, actually, I don't think that's the case. I mean, we've been told to forget that women weren't allowed. Oh, women just want to bake pies. Well, because you only gave them the choice of baking pie or cake. It's not that women really want to bake pies. It's just that that was only one of two options. I thought you said baking pie or rape. And I thought that was pretty accurate as well. Oh, dear. Well, yeah, you know, that too. That too. (laughs) That too. So, yeah, I think, again, the deliberate erasure is something that we need to be very aware of, that if you don't see a lot of writing by women, then part of that is because they weren't allowed to. For example, and I bring this up all the time, 
Mary Shelley, who wrote Frankenstein, which is largely considered to be one of the greatest, you know, novels of the modern age. And obviously we've seen how Frankenstein has appeared over and over and over in our zeitgeist since the book came out. But she was able to write that because her father thought it was stupid to not educate his daughter simply because she was a daughter and not a son. And so he took it upon himself to be transgressive, to be iconoclast, and to educate his daughter. And as a result, we have Frankenstein. So again, it almost becomes like an act of speculative fiction to think, what if other daughters had been educated? What amazing works would we have in the world if they had been allowed to learn to read and write? And again, the same thing happened, like you say, with slavery in America. You're not allowed to learn to read or write. It's not because you don't want to, or you don't have the fire, or you're not creative. It's because you weren't allowed. And that's a large part of the reason that these stories are missing, because they weren't allowed to be written. Yes. And what might the world look like today or at any time if women and witches were fully included at the table of power in mutual partnership? you know, in creating our societies and the ways of the world and, you know, having that emerge out of the wombs of women instead of out of the boardrooms of men. Mm -hmm. We live in a very exciting time in terms of dissemination of information. It's never been easier to tell your own story and to tell it publicly. Never, ever in the history of the world has it been easier. And so I would encourage your listeners to do so. Find their names. Say something. Anything. Yeah. Maybe I could share some writing from the end of the book about listening for that potential, that unknown world. This is Pixie Coleman-Smith, who was the co-creator of the Rider-Waite-Smith tarot deck, the most popular tarot deck in the world. But um, let us say, Risa, that mm. this was called the Rider Wait up yeah. until recently. Yeah. Dixie Coleman Smith did all the illustrations mm. and much of the work, and her name wasn't even on the deck. Just to put a finer point on yeah. that, and then I'll go. Ahead. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, she got detailed notes from her co-creator only for the cards of the Major Arcana, so she actually wasn't provided with much guidance at all for the majority of the deck. She drew her friends into the deck, and she drew a symbolic world that she was a magical world that she was very intimate with. And she was a magical practitioner, and she was incredibly tuned to the world. She would see worlds and universes that she recognized when she listened to music. And that's what this piece of writing is about. She says, keep an open mind to all things. Hear all the music you can, good music sound and form are more closely connected than we know. Think good thoughts of beautiful things, colors, sounds, places, not mean thoughts. When you see a lot of dirty people in a crowd, do not remember only the dirt, but the great spirit that is in them all and the power that they represent. Banish fear, grace your courage, place your ideal high up with the sun, away from the dirt and squalor and ugliness around you. And let that power that makes the roar of the high-powered presses enter into your work. Energy, courage, light, love. Use your wits. Use your eyes. Perhaps you use your physical eyes too much and see only the mask. Find eyes within. 
look for the door into the unknown country. I love that. And I especially love the way that ends. Yeah, me too. The door into the unknown country. Yeah. And that's what, what we're doing when we imagine a different world. We're looking for the door into the unknown country that is created within our imagination. And I'm so glad you read that. That was one of the quotes that I would have loved to have included, and I'm so glad you did. Oh, thanks. I feel like our conversation led us there naturally. Mm-hmm. I love it when things work that way. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Pixie is delighted wherever she is in the unknown country. And there's so much more we can talk about and so many other things. I would love to do this again with you guys. We would be honored and delighted. <laughs> Wonderful. So maybe we could end with the song at the end of the book from Amanda Yates Garcia. And you could tell us about the significance of that song. Sure, yeah. So this is from Amanda's mother, and this is really her story to tell, but she's been generous in sharing it with us. She grew up in the reclaiming tradition of witchcraft. And actually, I started by telling you that there was two times when I was so excited about the interview that I lost it, and the other time was with Amanda. Um, Crazy storm, electrical storm. We had this incredible conversation. It wasn't reported. We had to meet again. And I think Amy and I have you know, even more so become just in love with Amanda. And this song she sang at the end of that conversation and taught it to me. And it's how you close out a circle. Amy, do you remember it? Do you want to sing it with me? Or do you want me to do my best? You do your best. <laughs> she goes, Our circle is open, yet unbroken. May the peace of the God be ever in our hearts. Oh, Mary, and Mary, he part, and Mary, again. And when we sang it, we laughed and said, you know, if your voice cracks or you sing it poorly, just remember the words of our patron saint of Montreal there's a crack in everything and that's where the light gets in that's another one of my favorite lines <laughs> <laughs> could you read the words of the song sure Amy why don't you read it our circle is open yet unbroken may the peace of the god etc be ever in our heart merry meet and merry part and Mary meet again. <laughs> you just can't help it. <laughs> and Mary meet again. Risa Dickens and Amy Torok, thank you so much for being on the Magical Mystery Tour. It's been such a joy to talk with you. Yeah, you too. Thank you so much. What fun to get to dig into all those ideas out loud instead of just on paper in between the two of us. Thank you so much for having us, and thank you to your generous listeners for going on that magical mystery tour with us. And the book is Missing Witches, Recovering True Histories of Feminist Magic. And that's it for this magical mystery tour. Thank you so much for listening. If you missed any of the show or would like to hear it again, 
You can find this and all Magical Mystery Tour shows at soundcloud.com slash WGDR. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other. <laughs>